Continuing once again this morning in our study in Amos in chapter 6, if nothing else, at least beginning to look at verses 8 through 14 this morning, the Lord has sworn by himself. Now, just to kind of bring us up to speed and get our minds working again, a little bit of review here as we've moved through the book of Amos. It starts with the background of national Israel and the sin of her very first king, Jeroboam I, who did not simply lead the people into demonic paganism, but instead refashioned God in a manner that he thought he needed him to be. And having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the nation, they immediately followed after their king into falling into the vilest of depravities, the madness of believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth that was before them. And so some generations later, during the reign of his namesake, Jeroboam II, in two years before a devastating earthquake, Amos, a shepherd from Katoa just outside of Jerusalem, didn't hear but instead saw the word of the Lord. And the Lord roared forth from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. And the top of Carmel withers is a very partial God, shows no partiality in his judgment. For there is an anger that comes out of love that is stronger than any that comes out of hate. And so out of that anger of love, the Lord speaks to his people. He says, hear this, you cows of Bashan. Not a simple insult, but instead a statement of their spiritual reality. Out of all the peoples of the world, he knew them. He was intimate with them. And because of that, they will meet him. Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of armies, and the God of war. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He says, not because they do not know him, but specifically because they do. Because they do, he speaks lamentation over them, this complex song of anger and sadness, for God is angry with them, and rightly so. The virgin Israel is breaking his heart. Truth we've seen over the last month and a half is that if you're going to place your trust somewhere, and if you were led by previous generations and those that came before you to place your trust somewhere or in someone, you had better know who you're trusting and not just assume that you do. You see, they desired the day of the Lord, but it says they desired the day of the Lord not unto their salvation, but instead unto their destruction because they had believed a lie and they did not actually know the God whose day it would be. God told them to hate evil and love good. But instead, they hated good and loved evil and told told themselves this was the will of the Lord and therefore rightly well. Woe to you. Justice will roll down. It will turn itself upon you like water. Woe indeed. Particularly to those who are the least willing to be woeful. Woe particularly to those that are at ease, that feel secure. And yet their feelings do not match their reality. For while they may feel at ease, 
And while they may feel secure because the lie they have told themselves about who God is, the reality is, is they are neither easy nor secure. Last week we asked ourselves the question, why the denial? How can that possibly be when the word of the Lord lays directly before them? The answer is because they are those who have brought their God in their hand. When your God looks an awfully lot like you, you will always end up looking awfully righteous, even if in actuality you're not. Such provocation, such affront and offense, not simply that they are wrong, but they are false in attributing that which is wrong to a righteous God himself. Such provocation will make a holy God swear. And so this morning in Amos chapter 6 verse 8, The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. This type of provocation of attributing to God that which is not God and attributing to that which is good, which is actually evil, this type of provocation will cause a holy God to swear and not only to swear but to swear according to himself and the result of that oath is devastating. Verse 9 through 14 is described the results of what God swears an oath to. And then, if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up and bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? And he shall say, no. And then he shall say, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? You have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in low debar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim? Have we not captured it for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of war, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Bring out your dead. Except for in this case, it may not have the humor of the pop culture reference. It's exactly what we see. If ten remain, they shall die. And the guy who is left, and we're talking, remember, in 90% mortality rate. The guy who is left, who is trying to care for the bodies, the ESV is kind here. It says, he who anoints him for burial. Literally, the Hebrew means burns. 
We're not talking about what you saw with Christ being anointed for his burial. What you see here is cremation because when the mortality rate is 90%, there is, we are long past the point of being able to bury the dead. And when someone comes and asks him, is there any more? The answer is no and shut up. Don't even mention the name of the Lord. Why do you think there are bodies, bodies everywhere? It is him that has brought this disaster upon us. They're reeling in the results of their own insanity. That deceitful heart that would believe what it desires over the reality of God that is put straight before them. The Lord likens it to horses running on rocks. He says, would you take your horses and would you take them out and would you run them hard on the craggy rocks? No, you would not. You will kill your horses. Do you plow in those places with oxen? Of course you do not. You will break your plow and snap your yokes. But likewise, the house of Israel is take, taken justice and just with just as much insanity turned it to poison and they've taken righteous fruit and they've replaced it with wormwood. And because of this, they exist with this God of theirs in their own hand that looks so much like them. When they compare his standard to themselves, it brings them to a place of false rejoicing. You who rejoice in low debar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? You know, the reality is, is that from a pragmatic standpoint, from a historical standpoint, Jeroboam II, the one in whose time this book was written, had actually had considerable national success. He had had success as the king of Israel in going back and capturing back a lot of the lands uh, that had used to have been theirs that had become forfeit to their enemies around him. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, it says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, this is Jeroboam II, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, that would be Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamoth as far as the Sea of Arabah. And so we had Jeroboam the first, who was the guy that raised up the golden calves because he said, we can't have the people of Israel going back to Jerusalem to worship down there. So let's give them a God that, let's give them, a, let's give them an Elohim that suits our needs better. Okay, here is thy Elohim, O Israel, that led you out of Egypt. And it said that he caused Israel to fall into sin. Now fast forward all these generations. You have Jeroboam II, his namesake. He did not depart from the same evil that Jeroboam I was doing. He was doing the same things. He was just as wicked as his namesake was. And yet, from a pragmatic standpoint, it seemed like he had good success. 
He was able to return much of the territories that had been lost to Israel's surrounding enemies back into Israel's control. As a matter of fact, from one end of the kingdom to the other, all the way from Lebohamoth to the brook of Arba. But before we get there, first, the humor of the Lord, which almost always comes as sarcasm. And he says, so you who rejoice in low Debar, it's a play on words. Who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karn Aim? Captured it for ourselves. You know what Lodabar means in Hebrew? Nothing. Literally, it means nothing. Woe to you who have captured nothing. Oh, we can read about the successes of Jeroboam II, about how all the way from Lebo Hamath, all the way to the Sea of Arba, he brought those territories back in. The Lord looks at it and says, you know what, you've taken nothing. You rejoice in nothing. Nothing. You know why? Because the manner in which you hold it will evaporate like mist under the morning sun. You who have said, we have taken Karnaim, means horn, which any commentary you read will tell you that in this culture, in this day, a horn was seen as a symbol of, of power. We've taken power for ourselves. We've restored back some of the glories of the kingdom of Israel that had been lost. This thing's going in the right direction, symbol of power indeed, a symbol and nothing else. For there is no power here. You rejoice in nothing, for behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labal Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. It's like saying from New York to L.A., from one end to the other, from north to south, east to west, top to bottom, left to right, they will possess you. How will this be realized? Because we have a kingdom that, from a geopolitical standpoint, at this, you know, when, when you reference 2 Kings here, what's going on when Amos is writing this and what Jeroboam is doing, from a geopolitical standpoint, it really looks like things are going pretty well. Their economy's good. They're expanding in every direction. They're having success with their enemies. The king is going to sit on the throne for 41 years. That is a long reign by any monarch standard, even modern ones. 41 years is a long reign. may not be the queen mom, but uh, it's a long one. Some of these guys didn't make it a year. Things look like it's going pretty well, and yet the Lord says you rejoice in nothing. It'll all just be gone like smoke on the breeze. How is this realized? It is realized when God swears an oath by himself. And so I want us to consider this morning swearing and that to which is sworn. Once again, Amos chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord God, now you notice there's a lot of a lot of identifiers here. The Lord God is sworn by himself, declares the Lord the God of hosts. Right off the bat, this week and probably next week, we're going to talk about a 
lot of places in the text, a lot of places in the Word of God where there is a perceived tension. And that tension is perceived, I think, because it's actually there. It's real. And the first time we come to that this morning is with this concept of the Lord swearing. And so here's something you don't see very often. You see the Lord himself, and he's swearing. He's swearing an oath, and he's swearing it to himself. You see God swearing an oath to God, which is interesting because most of us, certainly I was raised in such a way that swearing to God was a bad thing. That was not a good thing. And yet, I was also raised to be well sanctified and be conformed to Christ and to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect and to imitate Him in all your ways. And yet, here we see this kind of contradiction that would have made you know my mama a little bit uncomfortable. And so here we have this guy that we're supposed to be imitating. You know, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And you have Christ say that I and the Father are one. And here you have Yahweh speaking from heaven. You have the Lord God speaking from heaven, the, the God of hosts. And he says, I swear by myself. So at this point, my mama would run real quickly to James chapter 5, verse 12. And so would I. Where the word says, above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so at this point, you know, kind of the easy answer is, well, that was the Old Testament, this is the New Testament, you know, times have changed. Yeah, we know that our God is one and he is immutable. Amen. And what was righteous under the reign of Jeroboam II is righteous when James was pinning his epistle and is righteous still today. And by extension, what was righteous when James was pinning his epistle was also righteous when Amos was writing his prophecy and still righteous today. The fact of the matter is, is there's a little bit more to it in scripture than just kind of simple platitudes that we tell children about how you speak and what to swear to and what not to swear to or whether to swear at all. The fact of the matter is, is scripture produces swearing, even swearing unto the Lord, both in a negative and in a positive light. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, the Lord himself says to Moses, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name shall you swear. Okay. Guys, that's an imperative statement. That's actually a command. That's a command. And it's funny to me that when we, when we take James and then when we take Deuteronomy, we, we, we naturally gravitate to the imperatives at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. Man, that is not a suggestion. That's not something you might find opportunity to do. This is a command. This is what you are to do. You are to fear him. You shall serve him. You shall serve the Lord your God. This is not optional. This is an imperative. This is a command. You must do this. You must fear him. You must serve him. You hold fast to him. Once again, a command. Not if you feel like it. You must do these things. And by his name, not may you, but shall you swear. Do it. Okay. Tension. 
What do you do with that? Other than just kind of gloss over it. Well, one of the things that we have a tendency to do as humans is we see things that are dangerous. Then all too often, out of a form of kind of emotional pragmatism, we decide that because that thing is dangerous, it should just be avoided outright. Instead of being recognized as dangerous, but perhaps commanded. <laughs> and so we do this. Mamas and daddies, they do it with little kids all the time. You know what? You got one that's immature enough? That's okay. Sometimes that's what you tell them. You know, there's a, there, there's a time when you tell a kid, you don't go in the street. Period. Now, why? Going in the street's dangerous. Is going in the street bad? Not necessarily. If you're going to get anywhere, you've got to go in the street. But when you've got a kid that's two and a half years old, they don't have the maturity to be able to go in the street, right? So you don't go in the street. Where we run into trouble is as maturity increases, if we don't relax the legalism in order to fit the reality, we end up with some real pharisaical problems. So here it is. Swearing is dangerous. Let's talk about that. Swearing to the Lord is dangerous for a couple of reasons. First, it's dangerous because humans have no ability, no power to actually go about and produce that which is sworn an oath. We don't have the power to do that. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 33, the Lord says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Okay, the tension increases. Here you have Jesus going, you've heard it said of old, don't swear, swear falsely. I'm telling you, don't swear by any of this stuff. I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Not by heaven. Why? It's the throne of God. It's not yours. You don't have any ability to control it. Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. It's not your footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. It is not your city. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability to bring your oath to fruition. So don't do it. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not take an oath at all. Not only do men not have the power or ability to produce that which they swear, they don't even have any influence over the one who does have the power or ability to produce. In Matthew chapter 23, further into his ministry, in verse 16 through 22, Jesus says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? 
So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sets upon it. These guys were convinced that if you yourself did not have the power, that if you yourself did not have the ability to bring into existence the oath which you have sworn, you at least had the ability through what you do to affect the one who does. So, man, if we bring the gold into the temple, man, that will, that will affect the way that God relates to us. It's the sacrifice that we bring. Maybe we don't have any authority over the altar, but we brought the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is the thing that pleases him. We can affect God. We can sway God in such a way as to bring about the oath that we swore by him that we actually have no power of our own to bring about. And Jesus says you're blind. You're blind. You think your offerings are going to change his mind? You think that bringing your gold to decorate his temple? I mean, guess what, guys? The gold is there because he spoke it out of nothing. He's not impressed. This is the same mentality that you see today in people where they think that if they pray enough, they can get God to change his ordained mind. And it's not happening. He's immutable. He will not be swayed by men. Let me tell you what he will do. He will take your prayers and use it to sway you. He will bring you into line with him. Oh, something will be changed, all right. It won't be him that's changed. It'll be you that's changed. It'll be you that's conformed. It'll be me that is brought into line with the image of Christ, not him brought into line with what we wish to be. There is danger, and it is is a dangerous thing. You can tell how Jesus talks about it. He says, do not take an oath. Okay. Well, how do you, how do you fulfill Deuteronomy and Matthew? How do you fulfill the command that it is by the Lord you shall swear and do not take an oath? Because you have neither the power to bring it to be, nor even the influence to affect the one that does have the power to be, bring it to be. How do you fulfill both of those at the same time? The first thing to understand this is to understand what God requires of us and what he requires of us in context of the command in Deuteronomy. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, and, and you should, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, where we quoted from before. But I want to look a little bit more in depth. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verse 12 through 13. So we've backed up a little. We were in 10, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name shall you swear. Back up to verse 12. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? Okay, well, we know some of the stuff he requires of us. By the time we get to verse 20, he's going to be requiring of us to, to fear him and to serve him and to hold fast to him and to swear by him. But apparently there's more because this starts all the way back up, you know, eight verses earlier. So now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God 
to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul in such a way that if you do so, there is no room for you apart from him. With all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. And so if we ask what the Lord requires of us, just out of verse 12 and 13, he requires that we fear the Lord. He requires that we walk in his ways. He requires that we love him, that we serve him with all the entirety of our heart and soul, the entirety of our emotions, our desires, our thoughts. That we keep his commandments for our good. Do you notice that everything that the Lord requires of us is like in orbit around him? There's nothing he requires of us that is apart from him over here. Everything that he requires of these people that he's going to say, by my name shall you swear, all orbits around him. Fear him, walk in his ways, love him, serve him, keep his commandments for your good. As we said, this is the nature of orbit. A little physics lesson here. At the end of the day, it is not the satellite that is affecting that which it orbits around. It is the centrality that is affecting the satellite. God is not swayed by us. Instead, we are swayed by him. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God says, I don't change me. You don't change me, I change you. Because this is who I am, therefore you do these things. This is what is required of you. Not only love me, but because I loved you, then you love the other sojourners as well. You don't change me, the Lord says. Israel, I change you. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and cease your stubbornness. Lay down what you were. Pick up what I require you to be. This is his nature. Prayer, worship, sacrifice, it's not about aligning God to our will. It's about aligning our will to his. Man, prayer is the workhorse of sanctification. Therefore, verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. It is all about him. It's not simply that we fear God. He is our fear. It's not simply that we serve God. He is our service. He is our fear. He is our service. He is our holding fast. And by his name, by his literally being, by his existential character, by who he is, according to a heart 
and a soul that have been entirely conformed to his, that is the one by which we swear. In other words, if you swear by God righteously, not unrighteously, a lot of unrighteous swearing by the Lord, but if you swear by God righteously, then you swear out of his character and unto his agenda, not attaching his character to your agenda. So, what does that look like? Well, in a human being, it looks like this. Here you go. Scandal in South Sebastian County. This morning, the, sweetures, the preacher is going to swear by God from the pulpit. You want to know what it looks like? Here's what it looks like. I swear by the Lord out of Exodus chapter 33 that he is merciful and gracious. I swear by the Lord that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I swear by the Lord that he forgives iniquity and sin. I swear by the Lord that he is just and wrathful and will by no means clear the guilty. You want New Testament? How about Romans chapter 8? I swear by the Lord God that he works all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I swear by the Lord God that those he foreknew, he predestined. I swear by the Lord God that those he predestined, he called. I swear by the Lord God that those he called, he justified. I swear by the Lord God that those he justified, he conformed to the image of his son. I swear by the Lord God that those he conformed to the image of his son, he has glorified. Or how about Romans 10? I swear by the Lord God that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He shall be your fear. To him you shall cling and by his name you shall swear. Not according to your will, not according to a heart that is apart from his, but according to a heart and a soul that is fully given over to the love of him, to the joy of his character, and says nothing more than he himself has said. That's how you swear to God. That's how you swear to God in righteousness. He shall be your fear. You shall cling to him. And by his Name you shall swear. Oh, friends, listen to Jesus. Don't make an oath. Don't do it. Swear by His. He's the oath maker. Stand on that. What he has sworn, by him we swear. And man, when he gets ready to swear an oath over Israel, the credentials by which he calls to is nothing less than himself. Man, in chapter 6, verse 8, when you see a holy God swearing, man, he is swearing out of a literal just kind of blitz of authority. I mean, man, he, he, you know, he, stops, he starts dropping credentials pretty hard and fast. Chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares who? The Lord, 
Which one? The God of hosts. I mean, in one breath here, you get the Lord God declares the Lord God of hosts. God speaks of himself here in three different ways. He speaks of himself relationally, intrinsically, and existentially. He speaks of himself relationally. He talks about how he is in relation to Israel. He talks about how he is in relation to his people. He speaks of him about himself intrinsically. He talks about what he is. Not simply how he relates, but just what he is. Even if you put him in a vacuum without you there to relate to what he is. And then he speaks lastly existentially. He speaks about who he is. And the breakdown goes like this. Now this is going to sound familiar to you. It's crazy. It's not coincidence. It's where the Lord has us right now. It's crazy if you're in the judges study on Wednesday night. We did. A, we touched on this a little bit. Not out of Amos, but out of, out of Judges. Because we see um, in Gideon this this, the, kind of the realization of this progression of thought. The Lord speaks to them relationally. The very first thing he says is this, verse 8. The Lord, notice if you have a modern translation of the Bible, this first word will have a capital L and then a lowercase O-R-D. This is the word Adonai, and it means master. Now, this could apply to the master of a slave, this could apply to the master of a house. This could apply to a father as master over his children. This, this could apply to a lot of things. As a matter of fact, it doesn't always apply to God. Often in the Old Testament you see it being applied to men or even to angels. This is someone who is in control. This is the master. This is the Lord. This is the boss. But he is not any master. He speaks of himself not only relationally, he also speaks of himself intrinsically. He speaks about what he is. It says he is sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. The word here for God of hosts, the word God is Elohim. It doesn't simply mean master. It's not just a, a, a relational designation. It's something more than that. This is what he is. It means deity. He's not a man. He's not a man. He's deity. He's God. And he's not just any God. He's specifically the Elohim of hosts. He's specifically the God of war that is about to swear by himself. But most importantly, he speaks twice. He only uses master once. He only uses deity once. But he speaks of himself twice existentially. The Lord God, G-O-D, all capital letters, has sworn by himself, declares the Lord L-O-R-D, all capital letters. He speaks about who he is. And of course the Hebrew here is Yahweh, the proper name of God. You understand that when God ponders himself, and he does it a lot, I mean, you have the greatest mind in existence why wouldn't you ponder the greatest being in existence all throughout scripture we see the lord say to his people consider me and he says look at me look at the glory look at the justice look at the love look at the look at the wrath look at the creativity look at the grace look at me consider me man the lord's considering himself and basically what he says is is i'm awesome and if you want good to come to you you should consider that which is awesome 
You understand that when you see the word Yahweh employed, you're speaking about God personally. This is the way when he thinks about himself. This is, when you think about yourself and you use your name in your own head, that's what we're talking about here. He speaks to them relationally. He says, I'm your master. He speaks to them intrinsically. He says, I I am God. But more important than that, man, I am that I am. I'm Yahweh, and there is none like me. And having stated these credentials, when he swears, there is no one else to to swear by but himself. As a matter of fact, if you look right here in chapter 6 and verse 8, when it says the Lord God has sworn by himself, the word for himself means his breath, his life, his soul. The Lord is swearing by his own soul. He is swearing by his own breath. He's swearing by his own life what he is going to do. Friends, I would propose to you that if the living God swears by his own life, if he swears by his own soul, that it will most certainly come to pass. And you go, well, man, that's pretty brutal stuff that he says next. I mean, you kind of hope that it won't come to pass. Oh, no, friend, you hope it will. You hope it will. And you go, well, man, it, you know, maybe we do. We know how all of this worked in kind of redemptive history to get us to where, no. That, man, the Old Testament is not the dirty little secret about how the sausage is made for the New Testament. I'm here to tell you, if you were living in Israel at this time and you read this and the Lord says, I swear by my own life and my own soul that I'm going to do these things. If you had a brain in your head, you would pray to God that it comes to fruition. And here's why. Because when the singular source of all life in existence swears by that own life and puts his own soul on the line, by extension, he's putting yours on the line too. Because guess where yours comes from? It comes from him. If the oath fails and his life becomes forfeit, guess whose life is forfeit? All of it. Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And what? And in him all things hold together. When the Lord swears by himself, when he swears by his own life, when he puts it on the line, he's putting yours on the line with it. Make you recalibrate the way you look at the things that the Lord swears. And all of a sudden you go, man, that's really tough. And then you go, oh, my life's on the line for this too? Yeah, okay, well, maybe it's not so bad. When God swears an oath, he swears it to others, but he guarantees it by himself. Such is the nature of God's swearing. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, speaking about the oath that God swore to Abraham, 
the oath that would not be the destruction and wrath that we see in Amos chapter 6, but instead the oath that would be the gospel that brings life and salvation to sinners. He swore it to someone else, but he swore it by himself. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 15, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise. So the author of Hebrews says that when God was swearing an oath to Abraham concerning the promise that is the gospel, he kind of looked around and said, okay, I'm going to swear this oath and there's nobody greater to swear by than me. I'm it. Nothing else even comes close. And if I was to swear by anything else, it all being lower than me, I could simply at any moment just nullify the oath and overcome that which was sworn on. It has no holding over me. I have holding over it. And so if I'm going to swear this thing to Abraham and I want to guarantee it to him with an oath, the only person that God can swear to is God. Or it's not worth the breath that it takes to say it. And so that's exactly what he did. And the record that's being referenced here in Hebrews chapter 6 comes out of Genesis chapter 22 and verse 15 where it says, The angel of Yahweh called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. Think about this for a minute. By my own life, by my own soul, have I sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and your offspring, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, we know that's the gospel. Jesus Christ tells us that is the gospel. And not only is it the gospel, but it is the gospel being spoken to Abraham in the moment when God is walking Abraham through a physical testimony of what the gospel is going to look like. Take your son, your only son. Go to Moriah, to the place that I will show you, and there you will sacrifice him to me. Abraham goes, okay. Okie dokie. He gets the boy, he gets the wood, he gets the knife. Them the servants, they make the trek several days journey. They get to Moriah, they get to the bottom. Abraham tells the servants to stay there. Me and the boy are going to go worship. And then he says something that sounds crazy. He says, we're going to come back to you. Now, it is fully in his heart to kill this kid. Man, he's going to go up there and slit his throat and burn him on a pyre. The very child of miracle in his old age through which the promise of God was being manifest. And God had already told him it's not going to be through another kid. It's not going to be through Ishmael. It's not going to be one that comes later. It's through Isaac. Shall the promise be reckoned? So here he is. And God says, okay, now I want you to go kill him and sacrifice him to me. Kill him to sacrifice my anger. Kill him to sacrifice my wrath. Kill him to sacrifice him to satisfy 
your sin and your guilt. Kill him. Now, you read the narrative and you think to yourself, he tells, he tells these guys, he says, you stay here at the bottom, me and the boy are going to go up top and then we will return to you. And you think, well, maybe Abraham's in denial. Or if you kind of take the, kind of the New Testament and especially the westernized kind of thought and want to project that onto God, well, he knows that God wouldn't ask him to do that. No, friends, God would ask him to do that. You know how I know? Because in Genesis chapter 22, God asked him to do that. Like he actually did. You want know the book of Hebrews will later teach us? We'll get there next week, maybe. You want know the book of Hebrews will actually teach us? Abraham had no delusions in his heart that he was not going to have to cut the throat of his son. He had so much faith in the promise of God that it says that he believed that God would raise him back up from the dead. That he was going to slit his boy's throat. He was going to watch him bleed out. And he had absolute faith in the God that made the promise that swore by himself that he would raise that kid back to life. Now, it had to have been the most anguish, the most gut-wrenching event of Abram's entire life. It had to have been. Imagine if it was your child. And yet in faithfulness, and notice God never apologizes for asking him to do it. Not once. Doesn't say, gee, Abram, gee, Abe, I know it was a rough day. Sorry, had to put you through that. It was necessary. He never apologized. You know why? No need to apologize. You're getting the gospel. Don't talk to me about a tough day, Abe. The angel of Yahweh called Abraham a second time from heaven and said to him, By myself I have sworn, by my own life I have put on the line, and I just showed you what it's going to look like when I actually take my son and put his on the line. By myself I have sworn, by my own soul, by my own life, I put it down. It is forfeit in order to fulfill this oath to you. You talk about an oath that can't be broke. You talk about the goodness of a God that swears according to himself. He doesn't apologize to Abe. Abe only had to walk through the testimony. In this moment, the Lord puts his son down and says, I'll do it. Finished. Man, no wonder Jesus said it's finished. You talk about a loaded statement, man. That means so many things. It's complete. And thus, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, not because of Abraham, but because of a God who swears by his own life to bring it to be and will spend his life in order to obtain it. So Abraham obtained the promise. Verse 15, thus Abraham having 
patiently waited, attained the promise. And then the explanation comes in verses 16 through 18. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have seen we have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place and behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What an incredibly beautiful thing. What a precious thing. The Lord says, I'm going to do this for you. I swear by my own life. And by golly, I'm good for it. And 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, he made good on the debt. What a precious thing, man. Lord says, Abram, I want you to be, I want to swear to to you more convincingly, buddy. And I don't have anything more sure than me. So I swear on me. And the promise came to him. And because of that, it came to me and to you. But I would caution you. that the oath of God swings both ways. There is tension in the text. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Speaking of these things, he says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain Mark, is that fair? Yeah. It is hard to explain. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Man, what's going on with the oath that God swears? The tension you see between the swearing of the oath of the gospel to Abraham and the swearing of the oath to Israel in Amos? The tension you see requires the mature. It requires those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now I want you to take note just for a minute. Every time I hear somebody go, well, we don't need to push people too fast. We don't need to push too hard. We need to keep the gospel simple. Hey, buddy, I'm, the gospel's not simple. The gospel can be simply understood, and it can be simply accepted, and it will simply save your soul. Amen? Golly, the alliteration guys would be proud of me on that one almost. All right. Let me tell you, the gospel's not simple. It's not. And the standard for the people of God in Scripture is high. The author of Hebrews just listed repentance, faith, instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment as elementary doctrines that we need to push on into the actual mature stuff. Yikes. Let me just read it one more time. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, both elementary doctrines according to him, and of instructions about washing, elementary doctrines laying on of hands, elementary doctrines of resurrection of the dead, elementary doctrines and eternal judgment, elementary doctrines. Let's move on from those and not keep laying them on over and over and over, but instead press on into maturity. Now, I don't know about you, But most of those doctrines that are listed as being elementary doctrines have pretty much been handing me my lunch for the last 30 years. He says, let's press on. And then he presses on, whether you like it or not. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but... If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What do you do with that? Well, I can tell you what God does with it. What God does with it is he swears an oath that is the polar opposite of the one he swore to Abraham. The Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of war. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. The word for hate is a word in the Hebrew that that means unwilling. Basically, the Lord says, it's, it's a very intellectual statement. The Lord says, what you're doing, I am unwilling to participate in. I am unwilling to go along with. I won't have any part in it. I hate it. But it's presented as as a hatred that is 
I don't want to say academic. I don't think that's fair. It's not academic in nature, but it is very intellectual. It's very judicial. It's very cut and dry. It's this is me. That is not me. I am unwilling to have anything to do with it. But the word for a poor. And I think it's important here to note that there's both because if you just have one or the other, if you just have the word hate and it's it's this kind of judicial academic thing, then then God doesn't have any real skin in the game. Just settle the debts and let's be done, which is certainly not what you see out of him here. When he's roaring from Zion, when he's saying, woe is you, this is more than judicial. As we said, this is an offensive heart. The reason he's angry is because his heart is breaking over the love that he has for his people. It's not just academic. He says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. It means to loathe or to detest. Kind of stuff that turns your stomach and makes you want to puke. And so the Lord says, according to my mind and according to my heart, because you have abandoned the one that did all of these things and swore all of these things to you, now I'm going to swear an oath to you on my life that is something completely different. It's the other side of the blade, the flip side of the coin. You go, man, what do you do with that? Well, I'll tell you what you don't do with it. This is where we'll pick up next week. What you don't do is exegetical gymnastics to try to make it mean something other than what it actually means. You don't do that. Instead, what you do is you go with Abraham... when he was receiving the kind of oath that you want to receive from God. And you pattern yourself after the righteousness of God that was seen in him. And you go, here's the deal, Lord. I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. I'm not going to try to make a case for the fact that you wouldn't actually send me to kill my son because right here in Genesis chapter 22, you actually sent me to kill my son. But I'm going to trust that when we get there, you know what you're doing. And if i got to go with the outrageous, we'll trust that you'll raise him up from the dead. What do you do with Amos chapter 8? What do you do with Hebrews chapter 6? What do you do with the Lord that swears by his own life that he will give you the gospel and swears by his own life that he will wipe you out? What do you do with that? What you do is trust him. And in trusting him, we hope in the good for his people because what he says in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 is shocking it's every bit as shocking as what he says in Amos chapter 8 but in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 9 what do we do with that here's what you do with it though we speak in this way death destruction mayhem cutting off from the promises of God Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, 
we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The Lord swears by himself. The Lord has sworn salvation to his people. He's sworn destruction for those who abandon him. The question is not whether or not he's done both of those things. The question is, who are you? Who are you? Which one has come to you? Will it be Genesis chapter 22 or will it be Amos chapter 6? Which one is it? My prayer is it's Genesis 22. I'm not done, but I'm, I'm not finished, but I'm done. There it is. That's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. Your word is, is big. It is deep. It is, we look at the things that you consider to be elementary things, and we say that they are beyond us. And so, Lord, how can we press into maturity unless truly you press us in? Lord, unless you give us the mind of Christ that we may understand the things of Christ through the spirit of Christ. And so, Lord, that's what we pray for. And we pray first and foremost today, Lord, that your spirit would draw and call those who hear these promises, Lord, these oaths that you have, you have made, Lord, and that in the fear and warning of destruction for those who are disobedient, Lord, that they would run in faith and repentance to the oath that you made to save. Lord, we, we know that we're not going to change you, Lord. We have pray that you affect us. We pray that you affect sinners right now and that you would drive them to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory we pray. Amen.